0: Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
1: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: So Tracy, this is obviously for the two of us in our careers. We've discussed numerous times already. I mean, this is the second big crisis that both of us have been involved in covering.
1: Yeah, you know, I I kind of always used to think that nothing would ever top the 2008 financial crisis. uh, And boy, was I wrong, because I'm pretty sure this is going to be a, a much, much bigger economic crisis, maybe not as big a financial crisis in terms of what's happening to the banking system, but definitely bigger from a sort of macro perspective.
0: Yeah, definitely bigger from a macro perspective. It's a more global crisis, even though 2008, Mm. 2009 was global. It's also just like, you know, from a societal perspective, like, um, obviously, the last crisis had huge ramifications for the financial system. But for the most part, like, it didn't really change how people lived. There wasn't really much ambiguity about, you know, that much about what the post-crisis landscape would look like. Uh, Whereas in this case, I don't think anyone really has any solid prediction.
1: Yeah, for sure. This one is much wider in scale with the potential to affect not just the economy, but politics and society as a whole. And even back in 2008, in, in the worst of the crisis, you know, right after Lehman collapsed, when people were really worried about the entire banking system, they were still going out to get sandwiches, you know, still going out, getting haircuts, going about their sort of day-to-day uh, business, more or less. And all of that is very different right now.
0: Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly right. Well, there's never anything good, by and large, about crises. And this one is particularly horrific from so many dimensions. Um, but one of the things that's interesting to see, and having seen the last one and this one, is that in any new crisis, sort of... New voices are brought to the fore, people with expertise that previously weren't being paid as much attention to suddenly become uh, very uh, widely read and widely followed people. In this case, of course, numerous epidemiology and health experts, but also people who really have a detailed understanding the financial system who can really uh, explain all of these uh, sort of new, new monetary interventions and innovations that central banks around the world are doing are in high demand.
1: Right. I remember one of the, I, I guess you would say, the few good things about the 2008 financial crisis was that it sort of gave birth or um, gave a boost to this really lively community, almost, of independent financial bloggers. Um, and I still remember some of them. Some of them have been on Odd Lots before, and also uh again I remember this because I was blogging at the time over at FT Alphaville and it was my first uh job basically uh writing specifically about finance and markets and the great thing about the situation was there was a really even playing field because everything yeah. that was happening was so new uh it basically meant that even if you'd you know been following finance for 10 years you were sort of in the same position as a newcomer who was learning it uh all at once in real time. So it, it was really great to see that conversation happening.
0: Yeah, novel crises have a nice way of, as you say, leveling the playing field. Yeah. And the sort of old incumbent pundits don't really have an edge, which is kind of nice to see. So today <laughs> The
1: sad thing is we are old incumbent pundits now. I know. Yeah.
0: I know, but at least we could uh we could talk to the new ones. So today we are going to be talking to someone whose voice has really become extremely influential, really, just over the last uh, several weeks. Lots of people uh, reading his writing as one of the sort of uh, premier experts uh, on this crisis, particularly from the actions of the central bank, and particularly all of the extraordinary moves that we've seen from the Federal Reserve really since late February uh, through, uh, through now.
1: Yeah, so I know who we're about to speak to, and I have to say, I, I sort of don't know anything about his professional background. I just know Nobody him does. from reading uh, reading his blog or Substack, and also I think we did karaoke once. Uh, so I'm really <laughs> excited for this conversation. I want to uh, learn more.
0: All right, me too. So uh, I don't know anything really about his background either, and I even uh, know this guy. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring him in. He, he's uh, Today we're going to be talking with Nathan Tankis, he's the research director of the Modern Money Network, and he also in the last month has uh, launched a, much, a must-read newsletter that everyone in the world is subscribing to to understand the actions of the Federal Reserve. Uh, everyone should subscribe to it. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so
2: much for ha- having me. What, what a generous introduction.
0: There lots of people reading your uh, newsletter on Substack, but who are you? <laughs> i'm serious who are you like i've so I, I i know nathan i know you in real life uh i've got sandwiches and drinks with you in the past before this crisis but i realize i don't know anything about you like who are you then like how do you know so much about how the fed works?
1: i like how we booked nathan to come on all thoughts without <laughs> without actually knowing this crucial information yeah ahead, i have no nathan. idea
2: <laughs> hey the substack speaks for itself where my kind of origin story in terms of uh finance is the last financial crisis the I was in high school at the time, and the financial crisis was uh, extremely fascinating immediately, and uh, I was at a high school uh, that was kind of alternative weird in New York City and Manhattan that um, had two teachers who had discretion over the curriculum and basically just said in January 2009, let's just do a class on the financial crisis, Um, Where you'd read the newspaper each week and you'd argue over nationalization, over the AIG bonuses, over the stimulus, and just sort of like argue out what everyone else was arguing out on a week-to-week basis. And from that, I was completely hooked um, and fascinated by crisis, you know, trying to figure – what was so interesting was it felt like something that no one really quite understood, but it was obviously the most important thing happening. And so ever since then was just fascinated by crisis, wanted to learn about it, discovered writings by minsky, um, and that sort of just set me on a trajectory to be very, very interested in crisis, uh, financial market design, uh, fiscal policy, and over the years, I've kind of moved into r- working and writing on policy
1: so Nathan, if you don't mind me asking. What do you do now, and does it overlap with your uh, your interest in policy?
2: Uh, as Joe introduced me, um, research director of the Modern Money Network. Before all this happened, and with uh, with the pandemic, which has obviously you know become at the top of everyone's attention, and I was working on a report on uh, monetary policy for a Green New Deal. It um, kind of been doing similar. Uh, policy-ish things uh, in the background, kind of pushing alternative frameworks to implement these sort of broad policy goals that uh, people have been interested in.
0: So we should get to the, uh, you know, what you've been writing about and sort of how we can understand the Fed's extraordinary actions in a, in a moment. But you mentioned, you know, after high school, you sort of got interested in finance. But one of the things that really stands out in your writing is not just that you're sort of uh, interest in this altogether, but the sort of extreme granularity with which you understand monetary operations. Because I think a lot of people have this idea. It's like, OK, the Fed is buying junk bonds or the Fed is going to uh, you know, intervene in some new market. But the the way you write about it is far more granular and uh, detailed than that. So between you know over the last two years, how did you? Or sorry, over the last say ten years, how did you really educate yourself on like the sort of finer points of topics that even a lot of like so called experts in the field actually don't have a ton of understanding? Of?
2: Um. Well, I think I, one of at the one of the most basic levels is just. Understanding monetary operations and the details of monetary operations is really just about learning a language. That there's this language, this language of accounting, of T accounts, of drawing balance sheets, of drawing, you know, you know, saying this entity has assets and liabilities, and what set of transactions balance these balance sheets throughout the economy. Um, that is it's it's not so much like oh, getting like a very detailed understanding, although you also have to know the operations and the names of the facilities um and the type of financial assets and their legal structure but to becoming more conversational in terms of monetary operations becomes just like a a rote doing examples of monetary operations over and over and over again um, and, drawing, and drawing the T-accounts. I mean, this is, you know, one of the best things about Perry Merling's, a past guest on the show's, a um, uh, Coursera course, is that drawing of balance sheets. Um, and I think that really is that core of that class. And um, I think that's generally applicable that the best money and banking and understanding of, of monetary operations comes from just Doing it, it's just the language that you have to learn, like any other language. And once you have it, once you can speak it, quote unquote, it's very easy to get a handle on new situations and new things going on. Like, so I have a pre-existing framework um, and pre-existing understanding of law before I look at all these different uh, facilities and just balance sheet it out and figure out, okay, what exactly is going uh, is going on behind these facilities. And once you do the operations, become Clear what they mean, especially when you're used to seeing similar uh, operate, monetary operations in past examples.
1: Mm. I think that language point is really important. And I guess cynics would say that uh, maybe central bankers sort of make the language uh, as difficult as possible in order to sort of keep um, the riffraff out, I guess, or make it less understandable for uh, outsiders. But just to press on the point of, of how you learned about monetary policy, were there any particular resources that you depended on? Because I remember back in 2008 in the financial crisis, then most of what I was reading, for instance, um, to get up to speed, it it all came from blogs and maybe some of the sell side notes. But is there anything in particular that you found useful?
2: Um, Yeah, I read, you know, blogs as well. I mean, I still have, I have an old reader of my Google reader from the time. um, (laughs) And you know, still, still technically subscribe to all those different sets of blogs, things like Naked Capitalism by um, uh, Eve Smith, even just the whole ecosystem blogs beyond like one specific blog, with the exception of maybe Naked Capitalism. It was more reading the different arguments uh, that would go through different uh, sets of blogs, things that would bounce from Krugman to to DeLong to all over the place. Um, seeing people in when they're actually arguing with each other is kind of when you get the clearest sense of, um, what's unclear, what's good to learn about. But, um, I would say combination of that plus reading Minsky, which definitely was revelatory and then just sort of getting obsessed and reading all sorts of, uh, all sorts of alternative heterodox literature, post-Keynesian literature until like, you know, felt like I really had a handle on things.
0: Let's talk about, uh, Minsky because I'm sure I think a lot of our uh listeners maybe have some idea who he is they have some idea that the financial instability hypothesis that systems tend towards instability probably some of our guests would find him uh uh would cite him as being influential what was it about his work specifically that influenced you and sort of set you on the path like what is what is the sort of main idea that really set you a light behind uh, of his? First
2: that, you know, you have to be able to speak in balance sheets, that balance sheets is how you keep yourself coherent, but then that the instability and in the innovation in finance is one and the same thing. The idea that you're going to expand balance sheets, but with a unique uh, financial uh, instrument, you know, yeah, what I would say today, a, a unique uh, legal structure to those, Uh, to those financial instruments, and that there's this social process by which new legal and financial innovations convince people that a financial structure that in many respects is similar to an unstable one from in the past is going to be stable uh, this time. And then, you know, watching him discuss it through examples, examples that I think are like obscure now, like, you know, he has a whole large sections in stabilizing unstable economy on Real estate investment trusts in the '70s, and these sort of more obscure things, where you see um, how the financial structure evolves and uh, and and its relationship to to instability, and then also just things like you know Minsky, you know, at the time when securitization seemed like this newfangled thing that no one paid attention to, reading Minsky discuss securitization and the, its. potential benefits to profit-seeking banks, but also its potential for instability, was like revelatory. You know, it felt like, at the time, maybe a little less so now, but in 2009, it felt like reading a profit when when you read about, when you read Minsky discuss securitization in the 80s.
1: Uh, Well, let's talk about um, the evolution that is arguably happening now, uh, and what we're sort of seeing from the Federal Reserve. Uh, You and I have I think we've tweeted at each other a a little bit about the sort of mingling of monetary policy with fiscal policy or the potential for that to happen. And it does kind of feel like even if it's not happening explicitly, central banks are certainly talking about it more. And there's this idea of um, monetary financing as well. Could you sort of give us a, a broad outline of what you're seeing on that front?
2: Um I mean what we're seeing is basically like a, a charged up version of uh quantitative easing the large scale asset purchases um over uh two thousand two thousand nine to two thousand and twelve roughly but this time rather than being you know this indirect attempts, uh, attempt to increase demand by say you know you buy a bond off of uh, off of a hedge fund, and they reinvest in somewhere else, and you know credit availability expands, or whatever other theory you have for why quantitative easing would work. At the most basic level, the begin the uh, the, the sort of supercharged quantitative easing now has been about making sure that the treasury market function, making sure that you know at this time when you have a huge collapse in income across uh, across business sectors, that they're able to access liquid assets they need to make payments and the normal financial players who would usually accommodate that demand for whatever reason weren't able to and thus the Fed became essentially you know a buyer of treasury securities of last resort or you know maybe even in a first resort. And so in this case the large scale asset purchases have been about um, fixing the financial plumbing. Um, and making sure people have access to Treasury security liquidity, rather than the sort of other, uh, the other sort of justifications for large-scale asset purchases that happened a decade ago.
0: Right. So a decade ago, arguably, or in retrospect, obviously, the Fed did a lot of Treasury buying, uh, but it was limited. It was arg- arguably a, primarily a signaling vehicle about raids, or maybe it was something to do with the portfolio channel. To encourage people to riskier assets to stimulate the economy but in this case it was literally about making sure people could get liquidity for treasuries the one thing that seems like very different or sort of like a innovation beyond what we saw in, in the last crisis is the degree to which the fed is intervening in the market for risky assets on the credit side uh, having clearly stepped into the uh, market for investment grade bonds but even uh, high yield bonds Entities which carry credit risk and um, could, in theory, default. Talk to us about what they've done and how innovative it is in terms of a break from its previous actions. It represents for the Fed to get involved in these markets. Uh, I think it's
2: hugely innovative. I think we can't underestimate. You know, of course, there's been uh, in, in Europe by the ECB, uh, in Japan there have been purchases of of corporate uh, of corporate debt. So it's not a, a, a completely brand new innovation in terms of um, central banking, even recent central banking globally. But for um, the Federal Reserve, it's very unique because the Federal Reserve has has uh, has had a, more than any other central bank has had this commitment to our policy is neutral. Um, we don't pick winners and losers. We're just here to you know provide general credit support to manage general economic conditions. We're not about these specific entities, and um the innovation today is that that is um clearly not the case they by by circumstance they feel forced to make sure that corporate America as a whole has access to liquidity, but that you know the mechanism for doing that launching these the primary corporate credit uh uh facility and the secondary market corporate credit facility that launching these facilities they are <laughs> intervening they're making specific choices they're choosing um investment grade bonds and investment grade bonds that were investment grade below before a certain point i think the current one is the current cutoff is march 22nd and they're and uh, as well they're buying exchange traded funds um, and this is specifically you know th- this is them saying, you know, this set of corporate America, we we need to prevent the spread between their borrowing rates and the risk-free borrowing rate from exploding. They need to be able to access credit in this difficult time when there's this you know big drop in revenue across the board. They are they're they're putting this out there, and I think it's gonna it's gonna change the Federal Reserve f- from now on. There's always gonna be bought corporate uh, credit, uh, corporate securities before, you can, you know, first of all, shouldn't we give you normal, give this to you as a normal tool of monetary policy? There's going to be talk about um, specific sectors that they should be supporting, um, especially around energy, I think is going to be a huge one um, in terms of the future of monetary policy debates. And, And that combined with the municipal liquidity facility, which is state and local purchases, now there's, I think there's going to be this like debate between, okay, if you're at the zero lower band and you can't really have anywhere else to go, what should you be doing to try to uh, support the economy? Should you be loosening uh, the financial constraints of non-financial corporations or should you be loosening the financial constraints of municipalities, especially the most disadvantaged municipalities who experience a lot of austerity especially over the last decade and so i think that i think that is the future of of debates over monetary policy and it's a very different world that and it's a world that the federal reserve is uncomfortable with above everything else
1: post 2008 i remember we saw people up in arms over you know it- well, people were up in arms over quantitative easing and talking about moral hazard and, and stuff like that. And of course, now we see the Fed taking on credit risk on an entirely different scale. Uh, from your perspective, and this is kind of a tough question, but do you think they should be assuming that credit risk? And, and what kind of moral hazard debates would you expect this to open up?
2: I I think the corporate credit facilities are necessary i do think that you can't like you can let specific companies go down but you can't let um there to basically be a run on you know corporate america as a whole what i would say is i think the fact that you know that the safety net is revealed that you know not just that specific banks are too big to fail but corporate america as a whole is too big to fail and will always get some sort of generalized support um, and now, especially in the finance side, through the Federal Reserve, opens up questions about what responsibilities do they have as uh, to the public, as we're essentially treating them as part of public uh, infrastructure. You know, there are essential workers, but now there are also essential corporations, and I think that opens up a question uh, to you know how you know firms operate, and to the extent to which that they're going to be truly especially big multinational corporations are going to operate truly as these like purely private entities or whether there's going to be a transition to seeing them as sites of governance that involve a, a series of stakeholder who all have uh, rights. Um, and I think that that is going to be a key piece. And of course I think it's going to be, I think the municipality stuff is uh, very, is very critical as, as well, and in fact, it should be expanded a lot. I think you know it hasn't been anywhere near uh, near enough what they've been doing.
0: I want to get a little bit uh, you know soon into what more the Fed could be doing, but before we do, I mean, Tracy asked about the sort of moral hazard, entanglement questions, governance. What about the pure legality question of what they've done? There are people who say, oh, this is blatantly illegal. And then they cite some line of the law regarding the Federal Reserve Act, and they say they can't be taking on credit risk like that. Just from a sort of purely within the bounds of what they're allowed to do, in your view, are they sort of still unambiguously within uh, the letter of the law?
2: I don't think it's unambiguous. I think it's definitely stretching the law some, um, but it's stretching the law in the way, that, in the exact way that uh, that happened in 2008. And what's, so, I mean, to back up, the, the the key legal innovation that was employed in 2008 and employed today was, okay, we don't have the legal authority to do sets of purchases uh, directly, so we'll launder these purchases through essentially this straw purchaser that we'll create, which is a special purpose vehicle. At the time, they were named Made in Lane 1, Made in Lane 2, Made in Lane 3. Um, as far as I know, there isn't any really names today um, uh, for them, or if they're just like named after the facility or whatever, but they're setting up the set of special purpose vehicles where there is. Um, a injection of equity from the treasury where they'll they'll buy you know 10 billion dollar equity stake or 30 billion dollar equity stake whatever it is um into the special purpose vehicle and then that special purpose vehicle will conduct all the purchases that we're talking about so the corporate credit facilities these are special technically special purpose vehicles um and the idea behind that is that the equity stake from the treasury is makes this sort of like a, a partnership between the treasury and the federal reserve rather than the federal reserve purely acting on its own authority. And thus, you know, it's, it's legal. I think it's, I think the case for the special purpose vehicles being legal is pretty strong, you know, and also who would have standing in a court to challenge them. But I think that they open up big questions of like, why, if, if we think that this is an appropriate emergency tool, then the use of the is facilities should be legislated. Like, there's no reason why we can't legislate that there a facility exists that is, you know, a special emergency treasury federal reserve facility, which, by the way, could have a permanent staff that is uh, studying uh, crises and. You know tail risks uh, all, uh, all the time um, that can get up and running when it needs to, and it's running scenarios and so on and so forth, um, and then specifically specify what sort of powers that that uh, that that joint Treasury Federal Reserve facility has uh, in extraordinary times. So I think in broad strokes, I think these facilities are legal. The, the defense of them being legal is very strong, but I think it's a huge policy failure that we. Are leaning in special purpose vehicles, and I, I don't think it was at all clear to anyone, um, including experts and uh, the public at large, that recourse to special purpose vehicles to do whatever you want was still on the board after, uh, on the table after Dodd-Frank. And I think, you know, there's, there's a big question of democratic accountability in terms of having this sort of uh, state of exception where you can set up a special purpose vehicle and do whatever you want.
1: Right. The Fed is sort of, I guess, cobbling together these various facilities under immense time pressure, or maybe they're sort of MacGyvering it, right? Like putting it together in any way they can. Um, but as you say, if, if if they had the explicit ability to do that, then we would save a little bit of time and maybe we shouldn't be coming up with new policies or new ways of doing things in the middle of an emergency uh, in this way. Uh, you've written thousands and thousands of words at this point about what the fed has been doing what else could they do at this point what's sort of top of the list or number one if you had a wish list from the fed
2: uh, number one is definitely just expanding the municipal liquidity facility um I mean I think it should just be like in unlimited swap line to state and local governments for the duration of the crisis. You know, we, we provide unlimited swap lines to foreign governments. I don't see any reason why we can't provide unlimited swap lines now, especially, you know, a pandemic is an especially unique circumstance where you need uh, public spending on the ground and you know, that spending literally saves lives, you know, in a very immediate direct way when you provide that, that, that those financial support. So I think, um, Massive expansion uh, at the state and local level is is kind of uh, biggest thing for me. I think second is um, I think not only is like it weird that we're doing special purpose vehicles, but the way that they have structured it legally with the CARES Act, where and and they're, they're essentially their legal argument where the Fed's purchases and taking on of credit risk um, is somehow in proportion to the equity stakes that uh, the treasury is putting up through the exchange stabilization fund. I think that is a limited structure that hits the problem with quantitative easing where you can't simply set rates, you just have to announce specific quantities and hope that they have the, the interest rate and credit availability effects that you want. I think you know an alternative you know, accounting gimmick essentially um, to that accounting gimmick would have hmm. given them the ability to set uh, interest rates across the board, and it's unfortunately, you know, set up a special account of crisis facility account where losses are booked to that gets booked as a negative equity, a negative liability of the Treasury, and isolated from all the other remittances, A negative liability of the Federal Reserve that gets booked as uh, that that gets you know separated from remittances would have you know given them much broader scope to would have. Let uh, congressional appropriations actually go to grants and spending, um, and you know would would make their 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 emergency monetary policy much more effective. So I think you know those those two big things really expanding on the municipal front, and then an alternative accounting gimmick, so they could really expand uh, purchases and lending. I think would really the way to go.
0: One of the weird things about the uh, recovery effort and uh, you know the payroll protection component of the CARES Act is that it's all run through the banking system. So even though it's a, it's Treasury backstopping all of these dischargeable loans to companies, companies that want to keep workers on their payroll have to go to their bank and fill out paperwork and they're different issue. Every bank has their different issues. Um, what, in your view, we've been talking a lot about uh, asset purchases and so forth. What could the Fed do on the regulatory side so that the banks are in a better position themselves to provide money or provide credit to keep the economy going? Or uh, yeah, just generally speaking, is there something that they could be doing to the banks uh, directly that would help the help the economy overall? Um,
2: I don't think that there is anything, you know, one thing we forgot to talk about was the mainstream, or I forgot to mention was the mainstream lending program, that they're doing direct lending to small, or launching a program to do direct lending to small and medium-sized businesses, again, through banks in a similar way to the um, PPP, uh, and I think that banks are, you know, as there's a, the um, economist running writing about it recently, I'm linking on her name, um, someone who, comes from the money view. Was writing about recently about how banks are actually very unused to being credit intermediaries. Their payment inter- intermediaries they make payments all the time, but they're not used to being credit intermediaries. Despite you know the sort of textbook um, examples uh, saying that that's how things work, and so they're they're very uncomfortable being these pass through mechanisms for the Federal Reserve or, or uh, the Small Business Association uh, from operating, and so I think. One thing is to sort of kind of be tighter on regulatory pressure to make sure that loans are going out the door uh, as fast as possible, um, but also uh, that that consolidating these programs into one program uh, makes a, a lot of sense. Like they've launched, uh, the Federal Reserve has actually launched a facility to provide liquidity um, to PPP loans, where they're providing term financing and the loans get pledged as collateral, um, on a no recourse basis, which means that the bank could just walk away and the Fed takes the collateral, um, and nothing else is said. You know, which is kind of like a, a effectively a purchase with an upside to uh, to the seller. Um, and you know, if we're going to do that, if essentially you know the the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is going to be backstopping these loans, um, just like the Main Street lending program and all the the quote-unquote government guarantee does is improve the federal reserve's net worth after the fact then it seems you know in retrospect it feels like these facilities could have been consolidated you could have booked losses like i was saying to um a special you know crisis facility ac- uh, account um, and you know segregated that from the rest of the federal reserve's balance sheet um and these programs would have run on a uh on a much simpler, smoother basis with one bureaucracy and, you know, dealing with the Fed, which they're more used to dealing with on, on these banking sides. But uh, it's a, it's a, it's a tough problem. Regulators can, can loosen things. They can lower capital requirements. They can lower liquidity requirements. They can, they can encourage banks. They can threaten banks. Um, But at the end of the day, banks are in the business of lending and the problem right now is income. You know they're doing a small bit through the mainstream lending program of deferring principal and interest payments for a year, and that's nice and that's better than what they would have been doing otherwise. But you know the the Fed is very un, unused and does not like being a, a fiscal authority, with good reason. And we really need to be doing this through uh, grants, and you know of course the small the PPP program is is an attempt to do that. Uh, through a kind of a kind of sort of grant structure but i think there probably was an alternative way to do it um that was simpler especially one that wasn't rely on that specific appropriations so you just had you qualify if you're this type of small business and you get this amount of forgivable low of forgivable loans or grants or whatever it is um and i think that would have been a, a smoother process that would have been easier to administer you know more just like you know a basic income, but for businesses than um, the sort of almost means tested, almost loan, almost grant um, structure that they've been going with.
1: Right. Um I want to get back to something you said earlier, or you touched on it, the idea of, um, I, I guess, how expanded powers for the Federal Reserve would interact with democracy. So the Fed is an unelected body. And whenever we start talking about the Fed actually doing stuff or, and maybe having expanded responsibilities or expanded powers. This inevitably comes up. But how do you view that debate? Should the Fed be basically enacting um, well, almost fiscal policy in, in some senses of the word, with, without having been um, voted into office?
2: From a from a legal perspective, which you know a lot of you know my organization is filled with lawyers, having some sort of administrative agency, which is what the Federal Reserve Board is, conduct some have some discretion over fiscal policy, uh, isn't totally out there from our point of view. You can have you can have you know administrative agencies conducting fiscal policy. The issue is is designing a, a legal structure which defines the bounds of um, that conduct of fiscal policy and integrates it into a larger macroeconomic framework that the government is operating in. And, you know, the problem, you know, with our government, probably most governments is there isn't really a macroeconomic framework that's being operated in. There's, you know, a congressional budgeting process, and then there is the central bank and its powers. And, you know, there's, you know, some fiscal automatic stabilizers, some programs like social security, but basically, you know, the Fed is the macroeconomic policymaker of the of the federal government. And as a result, it gets leaned on more and more as, as we encounter macroeconomic instability, whether it's pandemic caused or financial crisis caused. And so I think that does strain uh, democratic norms in the sense that we have this administrative an agency that's very difficult to understand for the public to understand and understand what's going it's not clear what their emergency powers are like you know I I, I think if you had taken a hundred answers to a layman of what the fed's emergency powers are for dodd-frank uh, before this latest crisis you know probably 90 of the answers would have been wrong not more um, given what we've what we what, what has happened now and I think you know that is extremely corrosive you know I think that you know our macroeconomic policy framework is an essential component of civics. It's what, you know, defines what you, whether you're going to have a job, what the quality of your job is, what the quality of your retirement security is, what the quality of your health care is, um, and it needs to be an understandable part of being a resident of, 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 of a country. And uh, centering so much more things in the Fed, where the Fed by nature has to come up with complicated innovations to do what it's being asked is very corrosive and, you know, erodes people's ability to understand um, what's going on and what our policy intervention is. And Congress is, is essentially asked Federal Reserve to take on that role when it devoted $454 billion to the CARES Act to capitalize these Federal Reserve facilities. And I think that that is extremely corrosive. And we need, we need a, it's not the Fed's fault, um, for the most part, and we need uh, Congress and the rest of the federal government to take on um, much more of the burden of macroeconomic policymaking and become competent in macroeconomic policymaking. And that expertise is far too concentrated in, in the Federal Reserve, and not what you would decide ex ante to, you know, to in terms of your relative decision making. Right.
0: I think, uh, you know, Nathan, we could have a whole nother episode on just what uh, Congress should be doing now. But like I said, that would be a whole different uh, episode. Uh, But this was really great to chat with you. And uh, hopefully uh, you enjoyed it. And thanks for coming on Nodlock.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thanks, Nathan. That was great. And now we know who you are and what you do. Yeah, that
0: was awesome. Tracy, Tracy, I really like that episode. And I thought his last point, actually, at the end was uh, sort of the key to understanding the whole thing, which is, you know, people get angry about the Federal Reserve or they feel like the Federal Reserve is overstepping its mandate or engaging in uh, activities that it really shouldn't be engaging in. But the fact of the matter is, our entire system is basically designed so that only the Federal Reserve is in a position to conduct robust and timely macroeconomic policy.
1: Yeah, and there have been a few people who have said in the current crisis that the central bank has basically acted in the role of, I I guess, the grown-up in the room. Like They have been probably the most responsive, not only domestically for the United States, but we have also seen them taking on... This growing international role when it comes to providing dollar liquidity through the swap lines, it, there, there seems to be some recogni- recognition that the Fed is, um, well, it's a needed entity, isn't
0: it? Could you imagine like Congress voting on things like swap lines? like, like <laughs> On, if that, if, if, on if, dollar swaps? Yeah, like just imagine if that were something that they, we, we, our system were premised on. Congress voting each time to open up dollar swap lines with foreign governments,
1: or to raise or lower interest rates. I can only imagine um, right. how hellish that would be.
0: But I also think like it, it it sort of speaks to, and I you know he talked about like essentially it's all of these things are on some level accounting gimmicks. Whether it's the fact that the Treasury has to invest in a special purpose vehicle, which is then levered up by the Fed, which then remits its profits back to the Treasury. They're all accounting gimmicks, but they're uh, accounting gimmicks because on some level, that's the only way that you shoehorn these actions into our existing uh, legal and institutional structure.
1: Right. And I think the point is that you don't want the Fed to be spending its time. Thinking of accounting gimmicks or trying to structure these things in an emergency, you want them to be thinking about the actual policy um, and what makes the most sense for the current situation instead of pouring over, you know, reams and reams of legal documents to figure out how they can kind of create a thing in order to enable them to do something similar to what they would like to do. It's sort of a waste of resources, as Nathan pointed out.
0: I do think it's interesting also, it's like after the last crisis, like when the sort of smoke cleared a little bit, then we got Dodd-Frank because there was this sort Mm -hmm. of realization that it's like, all right, well, if the infrastructure of government is going to sort of, or the infrastructure of the Fed is going to backstop all these central banks or backstop all these banks, then we need to apply some new rules so this doesn't happen again. And Nathan sort of alluded to this, but it's like, okay, well, in this crisis, we've decided that the entire public, the entire corporate sector is a de facto public infrastructure that's worried, uh, that's deserving of a Fed backstop. And maybe that's true, but are we really going to let the uh, corporate sector then return to normal after this, or will there be some version of Dodd-Frank for all corporations, or should there be, once that we've sort of crossed this Rubicon where we've decided that they're all kind of banks too with access to Federal Reserve.
1: Right. Like imagine if corporations had to start uh, holding on to liquid assets, for instance, or um, I I guess the most political thing out there at the moment is the notion of curbing dividends or buybacks or something like that.
0: Yeah. And in fact, uh, it's funny because Nathan actually has one of the posts he's written in his newsletter is about should we have arguing for a liquidity coverage ratio right. for non-bank uh, public entities, which is basically this idea. It's like, okay, if you're an airline or if you're a restaurant chain or whatever it is, how much cash on hand should you have to be able to cover expenses? I mean, we do it for banks. So plausibly in this case, where we've seen now that all business for some uh, normally operating companies can come to a de facto halt overnight is it that crazy to start thinking about similar regs for uh, non bank entities? All these things are now sort of open questions.
1: Yeah, it's sort of overwhelming to think just how much this crisis has the potential to change. I mean, after the 2008 financial crisis, we did see all these new banking rules put in place, uh, new Basel rules, Dodd Frank, uh, as you pointed out already. But this time around, we could get whoa we could get new financial rules we could get new rules for the way the fed operates new rules for the way the government potentially operates and of course new rules for the way companies operate as well everything and people too society yeah
0: yeah no it feels like that's what really separates this is just that everything is is on some level um, it's on the table
1: okay Okay, well uh instead of talking about everything uh shall we uh shall we call it a night Hmm. or a day for you
0: sounds good all right this yes, been... this is the point where, by the way, we're, oh, we yeah. recorded this on uh, April 20th, 2020. So if you're li- depending on when you're listening to this and depending on what has happened since then, just for a point of reference, it's uh, April 20th.
1: Yeah, if the Federal Reserve started issuing its own securities already, uh, it's April 20th. Okay, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at TheStalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Nathan Tankus. He's at Nathan Tankus. Be sure to subscribe to his newsletter, NathanTankus.Substack.com. Also, you should be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts on Twitter, Francesca Levy. She's at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle... At podcasts. Thanks for listening.